Welcome back, my friends. For today's episode of Unshaken, I'm going to try something a little different. I want to teach two lessons simultaneously. Now, this isn't going to be some kind of technological marvel. It's not going to be some split-screen approach. I'm actually going to teach one thing, but at two different levels. I'm going to teach one lesson with all kinds of additional insight, spiritual depth and power, and another lesson that's just going to be a mediocre passage of time. And both of those messages will be conveyed simultaneously. It's your call to decide which one you get. In Alma chapter 12, which is where this lesson will end today, we see a set of verses that describes this duality perfectly. It's Alma chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, where Alma says, He that will harden his heart, and the heart is the key body part we'll be emphasizing today. He that will harden his heart, the same receiveth the lesser portion of the word. And he that will not harden his heart, to him is given the greater portion of the word. That's the choice that we're making. It's the choice that you'll make today. It's the choice each of us makes every time we sit before someone who's intending to teach us. Truth is always being preached on two different frequencies. It's almost like high definition versus standard definition. How clearly do you want to see things on your screen? In this case, there is a higher version and a lesser version of God's word. And both will be coming to you simultaneously. It's up to you to decide which version you'd prefer to tune into. I know you've all experienced it. You ever been to a fireside that changed you? And you talked to someone else about it and they were like, meh. Or finished a general conference that you thought, ah, did anything new happen? And then when you're reviewing notes with other people, you realize just how much they got that you missed? I've been on both ends of that. Times where I've received the greater portion of God's Word and times I've received the lesser portion of God's Word. Sometimes it's just different versions of me. That at one point I read something and didn't think much of it and then I came back to it and it was life-changing. I'm sure you've had that experience in Scripture or otherwise as well. What we're going to see today in these chapters is example after example of hard-hearted versus soft-hearted approaches to God's Word. People who receive the greater portion compared to people who receive the lesser portion. Or again, various versions of the same person, at times hard-hearted and at times soft-hearted, deciding for themselves just how much of God's truth they are open to receive. It boils down to the condition of the heart. Notice the end of verse 10. For the soft-hearted that receive the greater portion, how much do they actually get? They get the greater portion of the word until it is given unto them to know the mysteries of God. How much? Until he knows them in full. As opposed to those who do harden their hearts, to them they receive the lesser portion of the word. How little? Until they know nothing concerning his mysteries. And then they are taken captive by the devil. Then they're led by his will down to destruction. Now this is what is meant by the chains of hell. That is a profound insight. That the chains of hell are not physical. They are spiritual and intellectual and emotional. They are chains of ignorance. Ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, Jesus said which means the opposite is also true, that we are taken captive by our lack of knowledge. That even helps us distinguish between spirit paradise and spirit prison. If you reread section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants, prison seems to describe the whole thing. The biggest difference of what makes prison into paradise for the righteous is that they know they're not stuck there. They know that through the atonement of Jesus Christ, the chains of hell and the bands of death are broken and loosed from off them. Just like Abinadi taught back in Mosiah 16, just like Alma the Younger taught back in Alma chapter 5, two people in prison can be having a very different experience if one of them knows that they're getting out soon and the other thinks that their imprisonment is permanent. So greater portion, lesser portion, choice is yours today. In fact, choice is yours every day. Every lesson I've taught, every lesson anyone has taught is on that dual frequency. So tune into the channel of your choice. 
The condition of your heart is already making that decision for you. I pray that our individual and collective soft-heartedness will allow the Holy Ghost to pour out knowledge upon us, open our minds and hearts to the mysteries of God until we can move a little closer to knowing them in their glorious fullness. The examples we'll see today in Scripture will help illustrate this principle. So tune in to either version. But I really hope that by the end, you are fully dialed in to the frequency of faith that conveys the greater portion of God's Word. I promise it is worth softening our heart to receive it. There's not a single chapter in this great book that isn't worth our time and attention. And that includes the chapters we'll be studying today, Alma 8 through 12. Now this material isn't as famous as some of the stuff that we've studied already. King Benjamin's address, or Abinadi's message, or Alma's conversion. And it's not as famous as what we'll start studying a couple of weeks from now, where the sons of Mosiah are on their missions among the Lamanites. What we'll see today and next week are some of these middle chapters when Alma and Amulek are out teaching the people of Ammonihah. Part of its storyline, the conversion of Amulek, for example, and the ministry of Alma among the people of Ammonihah, and part of its discourse, which we'll see today when Alma is preaching to the people and then tag teams with Amulek teaching a similar message. To summarize these chapters briefly from the start, Alma 8, Alma is rejected by the people of Ammonihah, but he does meet Amulek. Alma 9 is Alma's message to the people of Ammonihah, followed by chapter 10 where it's Amulek's turn to share his message to the same audience. Chapter 12, we then meet Zeezrom, who tempts Amulek, and Amulek responds in awesome ways. And then chapter 12, Alma builds on Amulek's teachings from the previous chapter. So like I said, some tag team teaching between these two incredible missionary companions. A couple of years ago in General Conference, Elder Uchtdorf gave an awesome talk about things we can learn from Alma and Amulek. And I hope we'll have a similar experience today. Their message is amazing. The first example of two different levels of learning we see at the very beginning of these chapters. Actually, in one way we can say we saw that last week already. Alma 5 versus Alma 7. When we taught that lesson, we noticed that what Alma teaches in chapter 7 to a bunch of well-prepared people in Gideon was at a far higher spiritual level than the wake-up call that he was giving to the spiritually sleepy back in the land of Zarahemla. Alma 7 is a good example of the greater portion of the word while Alma 5 in some ways might be seen as a lesser portion of the word. Incredible chapter, don't get me wrong, but one meant to get us going, to wake us up, as opposed to one to reward those who are truly striving for greater righteousness. In fact, notice this detail in chapter 8, verse 1, that as soon as Alma returned from the land of Gideon, after having taught the people of Gideon many things which cannot be written, Talk about a teaser. I wish we knew exactly what that was and why they couldn't be written. Did Alma just not have enough space to record it? Did Mormon not have enough room in his 100th part to include these passages? Or was it that it could not be written because he couldn't vouch for the readiness of this modern audience? So much of what we learn in the temple, for example, cannot be written. Not that there isn't room for it, but that there needs to be a level of preparation on our part to open ourselves to the things of God, to soften our heart and prepare it enough to receive the greater portion of the word that only he can give to us and that he gives to us there in his holy house. Whatever he taught the people of Gideon, he's not teaching it to us. And that makes me wonder if I'm at a level of readiness anywhere near where the people of Gideon were. Well, he comes home from that mission. As it says at the end of verse 1, he rested himself from the labors which he had performed, and thus ended the ninth year of the reign of the judges. But notice what happens next. Great way to end the year, right? You've just whipped the church into shape in Zarahemla. You've blessed the people of Gideon with some profound insight into the atonement of Jesus Christ, and you come home to call it a year. Go celebrate New Year's. But then in verse 3, in the commencement of the tenth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, Alma takes off again. I love this about him. This is not a very long break between missions, between callings, between opportunities to serve. He ends one at the year's end and begins the next at the next year's commencement. Who knows if he even waited for all of the New Year's confetti to get cleaned up before he's out on the road again 
ready to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's a great example to follow. Don't let the gap between your opportunities to serve last very long. Keep the momentum going. Well, in verse 3, he goes to the city of Melech. And just like we knew a lot about Zarahemla and considerably less about Gideon, well, we know infinitesimally little about what's taking place in the city of Melech. But it does sound good. He teaches them in verse 4 according to the holy order of God. He teaches throughout all that land. And people from all the borders of the land come to him and are baptized throughout all the land. Again, we don't know any details about what message he shared, but we do know that it was very successful. It seems to me that the people in Melech were soft-hearted, greater portion kind of people, ready to learn as much from the Lord and his prophets as they possibly could. Who do we meet next? Well, this is where we see the first of the pendulum swings. From the greater portion in Melech to the lesser portion in Ammonihah. The soft-hearted people in Melech to the hard-hearted people in Ammonihah. Verse 8, he goes there and begins to preach. But in verse 9, we read that Satan had gotten great hold upon the hearts of the people of the city of Ammonihah. Therefore, they would not hearken unto the words of Alma. Some good foreshadowing there to what we saw in Alma chapter 12 that with a hardened heart you will receive the lesser portion of the word until you know nothing concerning his mysteries. That's Satan's goal from the very beginning. Remember the parable of the sower? Four different types of soil. But really that's a spectrum of our spirituality. And the very first group that Jesus talks about is the wayside, where the seed, the word of God, is scattered and falls on the wayside where it is either trampled down under foot of man or gobbled up by the birds that swoop down to devour it. Either way, there's no time for the seed to germinate. There's no plant there. It's like dropping things on the sidewalk, the wayside. As a result, as far as the adversary is concerned, there's nothing to worry about that end of the spectrum. Nothing's ever going to grow. The word never penetrates the soil. From the get-go here, if Satan's goal is that we know nothing concerning the mysteries, if we learned a little and we're on stony ground, well, then he tries to beat us down with heat from the sun and, and scorch our early growth. If we get past that stage and send the tap roots deep enough to find water, then fine. Satan will try something different and fill our lives with thorns and weeds to sap our strength into other pursuits. And even if we get past that and end up in good soil and are fruitful, he tries to limit that growth 30-fold instead of the 60-fold, 100-fold type of increase that good gardening usually brings. And if he can halt us there, then perhaps he can slowly move us back down to his end of the spectrum. Planting weeds, introducing rocks, and in his best case scenario, turning a well-watered garden back into the sidewalk saint that he'd hoped for in the beginning. They know nothing concerning the mysteries of God. Here, Satan has great hold upon their hearts. I'm not going to let a single word in there. No chance of germination and growth. So what does Alma do in response? Like any good gardener, he hopes to break up the soil. He hopes to water, to weed, to dig, to dung, all of those beautiful things we saw back in Jacob chapter 5. In this case, Alma knows that so much of that gardening is beyond him. And so in verse 10, Alma labors much. But notice, he labors much in the spirit, wrestling with God in mighty prayer. We'll find out later that that included mighty fasting as well. That God would pour out his spirit upon the people who were in the city that he would also grant that he might baptize them unto repentance, like he had done in Melech, like he had done in Gideon, like he had done in Zarahemla, to get people into this process of baptism unto repentance so that they can continue coming unto Christ. But notice in verse 10, Alma isn't laboring with the people. That's understood. Yes, he's doing that. But he's laboring in the spirit and wrestling, again, not with the people and not even with himself. That was Enos's experience, remember? When Enos talks about this wrestle that he had before God. Remember Enos 1, it wasn't with God, it was before God. Enos's wrestle was with himself, trying to repent of his own sins, come to grips with his own humanity. Alma's not wrestling with himself. He's already done that. 
We saw that at the end of Mosiah with the aftermath of his experience with the angel. We saw that in his explanation of many days of fasting and prayer that he might know these things of himself back in Alma chapter 5. And again, he's not wrestling with the people either. This isn't a Bible bash. It's not rhetoric. It's not trying to convince and prove that he's right and they're wrong. He knows the only hope that they have is the Spirit of God. It's the only hope he had, right? That's what had changed him. It wasn't any of his dad's incredibly well-prepared family home evening lessons, independent of personal spiritual experience. It was his independent spiritual experiences that changed him. And he knew that the same would have to be the case for the people of Ammonihah. So he's wrestling with God. He's praying. He's fasting. He's laboring in the spirit. This is some incredible missionary work with no investigators in sight. This isn't a horizontal proclaiming of the gospel. This is a vertical wrestling with God in hopes that there will be a vertical outpouring of God's spirit. That's how we reach across that horizontal divide, up and down, not just over. Some of the most important missionary work we ever do will take place before or after we've met investigators, knowing that so much of what really needs to happen is going to happen without us present, just between them and God. And so, so much of what happens for them is without them present, when it's just us and God. Notice, by the way, the one party who is present in both conversations, and that's God, the true source of all real conversion and change. It's not rhetoric. It is revelation. It's not just preaching. It is praying up and prompting down with God connecting missionary and investigator. Take him out of the equation and nothing horizontal will ever result in lasting change. Alma already knows what he's up against. Verse 9, it's hardened hearts who we know receive lesser portion until they know nothing compared to what he's praying for in verse 10. Softened hearts that will receive God's mysteries, but it's only the Spirit of God that softens the heart to begin with. Well, it's still not working. Verse 11, nevertheless, in spite of all of that labor and wrestling and mighty prayer, they hardened their hearts. And notice what they say to kind of throw it back in Alma's face. I wonder if he's going to have a little buyer's remorse, or in his case, seller's remorse for what he sacrificed back in Alma chapter 4. They say, Behold, we know thou art Alma. We know who you are. We recognize you. We know that thou art high priest over the church, which thou hast established. Forget God's hand. This little organization you've set up in city after city. According to your tradition. That's all it is. You got yours. We've got ours. But we're not of thy church. We don't believe in such foolish traditions. And because of that, verse 12, you've got no authority over us. Remember when you used to wear two hats? Well, one of them we had to respect, the political one. You were our chief judge and therefore had a certain level of political authority over us. Well, you took that hat off and all you have left is what we consider a threadbare religious authority that means nothing to us because we're not a part of your church. In a way, they're simply flaunting the fact that They don't have to listen to him. You ever gotten that from somebody? I don't have to listen to you. Well, in a way, they're right. And like I said, I wonder if there's a twinge of hesitation on Alma's part. Was I wise to remove that hat? Remember how he says it at the end of Alma 5? If you're part of the church, I can speak by way of commandment. If you're not, the best I can do is speak by way of invitation. Well, they understand the difference too. Oh, invite all you want and we will RSVP. No. We are disinclined to accept your invitation. Then again, I think Alma knew better. Like we talked about last week with this mighty change of heart. He knew it would have to come from the inside. No wonder he's wrestling with God for God to pour out that spirit. He's eliminated so much of the horizontal authority trusting wholly in the vertical change that could only come through God. But like we're seeing, it's not working yet. Verse 13, they withstand all his words, they revile him, they spit on him, they cast him out of the city. 
I have a feeling that those are all things that they would never have done had he been their chief judge. That would amount to crime, which would therefore be punishable. Now, church members would, of course, consider all this sin, but these people weren't church members. So get out. We don't have to listen to you, Alma. Well, undeterred, he simply departs, takes his journey towards the city which is called Aaron. Had a pretty good day in Zarahemla, a better day in Gideon, had a great day in Melek, had a rough day in Ammonihah. Let's go see how things are going in Aaron. Sounds like a good missionary that doesn't give up easily. Well, the Lord won't let him give up even on this one. Verse 14, while he was journeying thither, being weighed down with sorrow, wading through much tribulation and anguish of soul. Same verb he used, by the way, when he was talking about wading through his repentance until he was snatched by the merciful hand of God. Well, now he is wading through his tribulation and anguish because of the wickedness of the people who were in the city of Ammonihah. He's no longer worried about himself. I'm sure his skin was thick enough to deal with the revilings. He was able to wipe off the spit. It's hard to tell if his departure from Ammonihah was more him departing thence and, or them casting him out. But either way, he's not concerned about himself anymore. So what is this tribulation and anguish of soul that he's wading through? What's the source of this sorrow that weighs him down? It's the wickedness of the people in Ammonihah. He's worried about them more than he's licking his own wounds and thus weighed down with sorrow. An angel appears. Now with the appearance of this angel, we get a glimpse at a second example of a hardened heart that receives the lesser portion as compared to a softened heart that receives the greater portion. And this time, both hearts belong to Alma. Verse 15, the angel says, Blessed art thou, Alma. Therefore lift up thy head and rejoice, for thou hast great cause to rejoice. Thou hast been faithful in keeping the commandments of God. From the time which thou receivest thy first message from him, behold, I am he that delivered it unto you. This would be such an incredible reunion. I don't know how easy it is to tell one angel from another if it's kind of blinded in the glow. I, I have no idea. I haven't had those experiences. But this angel feels the need to confirm and clarify, it's me. This is not the first time we've met. Whether or not you recognize me, Alma, I recognize you. You've grown up a bit since the last time I saw you. And I mean that spiritually, even more than physically. I'm the one that stopped you in your tracks back in Mosiah chapter 27. You remember my message back then? Seek no more to destroy the church of God, even if thou wilt of thyself be destroyed. Talk about a call to repentance. Here, what's he say? Blessed art thou, Alma. Back then it was, you better feel the seriousness of your sin. Here, lift up thy head and rejoice. Back then, you have cause to sorrow over your sins. Here, you have great cause to rejoice. Then, you've gone about rebelling, seeking to destroy the church. Now, thou hast been faithful in keeping the commandments of God. And you've been that way ever since I last left you. Now, I don't know how God decides which angels should receive which assignments. Why Michael for this or Gabriel for that? Why Moroni to Joseph Smith? Well, I have some ideas about that one. Or in this case, why this same unnamed angel in both instances? Well, I think we catch a glimpse into God's goodness. Goodness towards both parties in these interactions. Goodness to the angel. Have you ever been a missionary that's been able to be there full circle? Or a parent who saw the rebellion and the return of a wayward prodigal. I remember six months teaching the same investigator in one area. He loved learning the gospel. That's why we kept on coming. But he wasn't ready to commit to it. After six months, I got transferred and didn't see him again. Until a year later, when I happened to go on an exchange in my old area with the missionaries that were serving there at the time, I asked them, do you know David Figueroa? And they looked at me, I've never heard of the guy. And I thought, really? It's only been a year, and this was an amazing investigator. He probably knows the gospel better than you do. And so I said, we got to go find him. 
We went and knocked on his door and he opened it and it took him a second to recognize that this was the same messenger who had brought the original message. And then his eyes just widened like, Elder Halverson! And we gave each other this big hug. Went in and just almost picked up like we'd never left off a year before. It was amazing for both of us. In fact, at one point, he just stopped and excused himself and walked out of the room. And me and the missionaries are looking at each other going, no say, I, I don't know what's going on. After what seemed like a long time, David came back into the room looking much more subdued than when he'd left. And he simply looked at me and he said, Elder Haberson, yo me voy a bautizar. I'm going to get baptized. And three missionary jaws dropped simultaneously. And he just said, seeing you again brought back such a flood of memories and experiences. And more importantly, it filled me with a joy that was so different that when I'm hanging out with my beer drinking buddies, Word of Wisdom had been one of the things he'd had a hard time committing to. It was such a blessing for both of us to be on both ends of that full circle experience. For the angel, he got to see it stuck, it worked, you're different. And for Alma, he got to show, he got to prove maybe in a way, I'm not the person I used to be. I wonder about that for people who have experienced mighty changes in their lives. And if they could just go back and talk to that young women's leader or that young men's advisor that had never given up hope on them, but had hoped and prayed mighty prayer, hoping that God would pour out the Spirit. Old bishops that you'd worked with or not worked with, but now you're just back wanting to rejoice with them. I love that it's the same angel, but a very different Alma in those two interchanges. A hardened heart the first time and a softened heart the second. Maybe that's another reason it needed to be the same angel. Go back and give Ammonihah a second chance since both of us know how God feels about second chances. Now in 16, he tells him, I command you to go return to the city of Ammonihah, preach again to the people of the city. Yea, say, except they repent, the Lord God will destroy them. So there's the second chance. There's the command to return. But notice what's missing from verse 16. There's no promise of success at all. Notice how little the Lord has said about the reaction that Alma has received. It's only been about the action that Alma is responsible for. Verse 15, you're blessed, but I didn't even succeed. Doesn't matter. Verse 16, go cry repentance again. But what if they don't listen? Doesn't matter. And if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance, whether you bring one soul or many souls or no souls at all, your joy in heaven with the Father is based on your actions more than their reactions. You preached, you're blessed. You cry repentance and you've done your work. God seems to know the hardness and softness of the hearts of those that we are trying to share the gospel with and only holds us responsible for our part, not for theirs. Verse 17, they do study at this time that they may destroy the liberty of thy people. They're not just trying to destroy it. They are studying, looking for better ways to destroy it. Compare that to Limhi's people who had made it all their study to find deliverance. Well, these wicked people of Ammonihah are making it all their study to seek the opposite end, destruction instead of deliverance. With that, verse 18, Alma returns speedily to the land of Ammonihah. Didn't take him long. That seems to be the way Alma does things. He comes home from a mission and speedily heads off on the next. He gets hedged up from one way, is told to try another, and speedily responds. He doesn't need much time to rest or recover. He just gets back on the horse and goes, and goes speedily. But notice one thing that is different here. End of verse 18, he entered the city by another way. He's going to try again, but he's not going to do it the same way as before. It's as if the Lord is saying, persistence is good, but persistence plus change, plus adaptability is much, much better. Yes, keep trying to accomplish my goals, my purposes. But if one way didn't work, don't just keep trying the same thing over and over. You probably won't end up with a different result unless you try different means to achieve it. Now, as Alma enters the city by this other way, he's about to meet Amulek, 
one of the great underappreciated heroes of the Book of Mormon. Now we're about to see Alma's version of that first meeting. But before we see how Alma describes it, I want to just get to know Amulek a little bit ourselves. Because Amulek provides a third opportunity to see the difference between the soft and hardened heart. The greater portion versus the lesser portion of the word that people receive. Because Amulek is from Ammonihah. He's one of them. And yet he's so different from the majority of them. There's something about his heart that is different from the hearts of those all around him. And it's as if Amulek wants to make that point himself. He wants to let them know, I'm just like you, but I'm not like you. That I was one of you until I no longer was. And that if I can change, you can change too. So go with me to the beginning of chapter 10. Now this is Amulek teaching the people right after Alma taught them himself. This is Amulek's introduction of himself to his people. Well, let it be his introduction to us as well. In rhetorical studies, there is ethos, pathos, and logos. Ethos is the authority of the speaker. And speakers tend to try to establish that before they get into the logos, the argument, that the message that they're trying to convey, or into the pathos, appealing to the emotion or the feeling of the audience that they're teaching. Well, here Amulek is establishing his ethos with his audience. So keep an eye out for what we need to know about him, but also what he wants his people to know about him. Verse 2, I am Amulek, the son of Gedona, the son of Ishmael, descendant of Amminadi, that same Amminadi who interpreted the writing which was upon the wall of the temple, written by the finger of God. This fits so perfectly into Old Testament examples, establishing one's identity based on one's genealogy. It's not just who I am, but this is who I come from. You know my family. Especially that last link he mentions, Amminadi, a prophet who interpreted the writing on the wall. Sounds a little like Daniel, who was called upon to interpret the writing on the wall that the Lord had left there. Well, it doesn't just stop with Amminadi. Verse 3, that man was a descendant of Nephi, the son of Lehi, who left Jerusalem. He's descended from Manasseh, the son of Joseph, who was sold into Egypt. Amulek wants them to trust the branch because they know the family tree that it's part of. Verse 4, I'm also a man of no small reputation among all those who know me. So it's not just ancestry. It's his own personal identity as well. No small reputation. I have many kindreds and friends. I've acquired much riches by the hand of my industry, which usually spells disaster for humility and openness to the messages of God. We've seen that and we'll yet see it over and over. But to his audience, you see how he's making a connection with them? I'm just like you. I'm someone you can relate to. In fact, I'm probably someone you would look up to. Many kindreds and friends. No small reputation. Riches. Industry. This sounds like the kind of charismatic leader that people would be drawn to. And yet his gifts, his reputation, seems all to come from the temporal realm. Verse 5, after all this, I never have known much of the ways of the Lord. Sound like his audience? His mysteries, his marvelous power, I was ignorant of, just like you. Now, I said I never had known much of these things, but behold, I mistake. I have seen much of his mysteries. I have seen his marvelous power. I've seen the preservation of the lives of this people when they probably didn't deserve it. So my ignorance of God... It wasn't his fault. This was a willful ignorance on my part. He says it more clearly in verse 6. I did harden my heart. There's that word we keep coming back to. What's the condition of the person's heart? How much of God's word and light will they receive? It's almost like the eye that can expand or contract to let in a certain amount of light. The quantity of light out there is constant. It's just how much you are open to versus how much you close yourself off from it. This is now the heart. How open or closed are you to God's message? Amulek hardened his heart many times. I was called many times. I would not hear. Sound like the people of Ammonihah? This is exactly Alma's experience back in chapter 8. Oh, I tried. They wouldn't listen. Why? Because Satan had such a great hold upon their hearts. I knew concerning these things. Verse 5, he said, I never knew much. Well, I actually did. Here, I knew concerning these things, yet I would not know. Sound like what Jesus kept saying to people that he was weeping over, but ye would not? 
not ye did not, not ye could not, ye would not. Sound like that rising generation that was too young to remember or understand King Benjamin's words? They could not, they did not, but worst, they would not. Well, here's Amulek. I knew, yet I would not know. Reminds me of Joseph Smith after the Sacred Grove experience. I knew it, and I knew that God knew it, wherefore I could not deny it. Well, perhaps Amulek is still struggling with this. Well, maybe God doesn't know that I really know. In fact, if I can convince myself that I don't know, then maybe he'll fall for it too. Or at least he won't hold me quite as accountable. In that state of knowing but not knowing, willful ignorance, I went on rebelling against God. Interesting, he calls it rebellion. He saw through his own facade of ignorance. It was rebellion. I knew better than that. He went on rebelling against God in the wickedness of his heart. Again, that's the body part we're talking about today even until the fourth day of this seventh month in the tenth year of the reign of the judges. I love all that Amulek is doing to try to connect with his audience. I've been called many times, just like you have. I ignored those calls, just like you have. I had a hardened heart, just like you do. But I knew, I knew better, and so do you. Live up to that knowledge. Admit it. I'm not too prideful to admit it myself, and I wasn't too angry to have it pointed out to me. You see the difference in heart? Amulex is soft. It can be molded. It can be shaped. It can be broken. The people of Ammonihah, so much like him, and yet so unlike him, hardened heart that's eventually going to have to be smashed and started over since they're not choosing to soften their hearts themselves. Now notice what happens to him. Chapter 10, verse 7. I was journeying to see a very near kindred. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto me. There have been some busy angels that day. One that was sent to Alma, one, another that was sent to Amulek. And this one says to Amulek, Return to thine own house, for thou shalt feed a prophet of the Lord. Yea, a holy man, a chosen man of God. Notice the details that he learns about this stranger he is yet to meet. He's a prophet. He's holy. He's chosen. This is God establishing Alma's credentials for him. He's fasted many days because of the sins of this people. Again, that was part of that wrestle he had with God, along with mighty prayer. Now he's hungered, and thou shalt receive him into thy house and feed him. And he shall bless thee and thy house and the blessing of the Lord shall rest upon thee and thy house. He knows all this even before he's ever met Alma. Reminds me a little bit of the woman of Zarephath, that incredible widow who gives her last little cake of meal to Elijah. One detail we often pass over from that story is the fact that the Lord had told her in advance that she was called upon to sustain the prophet. Now, the Lord didn't get much more specific than that. Sometimes makes me wonder what she thought that would consist of. And when Elijah first comes and meets her and says, can I have a drink of water? She runs thinking, is that all he asks? That much I can give. I can't give food, but I can do that. And as she's running, he then says, oh, and also can I have some food? And then the drama really starts to break forth. But she was prepared in a way for Elijah. Amulek is prepared in a way for Alma. Do we have faith that that's happening? That the Lord is already preparing the people that we will meet? So often we think we're imposing upon someone. We're asking for their time or attention. I wonder how many times they're surprised, not that we ask them. I wonder if they're surprised when we don't. Because the Lord has been working on them, preparing them behind the scenes that you are about to meet someone that will ask something of you, but more importantly, will give to you more than you ever offer in return. The blessings of God will rest upon you and upon your house. This will be a blessing to you. How many people are out there that are expecting us and prepared to receive us? Now with this, let's keep a finger here in chapter 10, but go back to chapter 8 to see Alma's side of this meeting. 
It's fun to see these two happening side by side. Verse 19 of chapter 8, as Alma enters the city, remember the angel has just stopped him and said, about face, you've got some more work to do. He returns speedily. He enters the city and he was unhungered. He says to a man. That's all he knew. He didn't realize that this was a man of no small reputation, that there were spiritual experiences in this man's family tree, that he had many friends and kindreds, that this would be a go-to guy that could relate to Alma's audience far better than Alma himself could at this time. No, he doesn't know any of that. To him, it's just a man. But what does he do? He opens his mouth. Will ye give to an humble servant of God something to eat? Now, I'll get back to the specific thing he said, but I think it's interesting in terms of these divinely orchestrated experiences that you have God sending angels to prepare both parties, missionary and investigator. He's telling Alma, go back and probably guiding him specifically, go this way because that's on the path that Amulek will be on. He's guiding Amulek, go talk to this near kindred, but realize that you'll be put into a position to meet someone along the way. This is what Elder Maxwell talked about, the orbits that the Lord places us in. And often it's as those orbits intersect that incredible things occur for both parties. But it's not just following the Spirit to go in a certain direction, different than the one perhaps you had originally planned. It's also having a willingness to open your mouth and let it be filled. Think about this from God's side. If he knows, if we've proven to him that A, we will follow the Spirit's guidance and B, we will open our mouths, then of course God can put people along our path that he has prepared for our message. I remember so many miraculous experiences as a missionary, feeling like I needed to be in a certain part of town or even on a certain street or even knock on a certain door and having proven to God, I will open my mouth him putting people in that path, on that street, in that house that were waiting for me. I remember opening up an area with a greenie. The area had been whitewashed. We were just starting basically from scratch. But we had an old area book. We were constantly finding. We didn't have anything else to do. There were no set investigators, no set appointments, no nothing. And so it was like, well, let's track for this chunk. We'll street contact for this chunk. We'll go use the area book and look up former investigators for this chunk of time. We were just trying to be as effective as we could starting with nothing. And I remember one evening, we were planning the next day, we went to the area book and we prayerfully sought God's guidance. Please help us know who we should look for. We found some names of former investigators that seemed promising. We looked for several that lived in, this, in a, the same general vicinity, checking it against the map that was in the area book, and then put a plan together for the next day. These hours, we are going to visit these people. The next day, we went to follow our plan. Well, we went to this part of town the next day thinking, okay, great, we'll look up all these former investigators and see if we can rekindle interest in the gospel. But when we got to this part of town that we thought the map was guiding us to, we realized that all of the street names didn't match what we'd seen in the area book. And we thought, great, now there's no way of finding these people. What are we going to do now? Well, I guess we do what we always do and we can't think of anything else to do. We just tracked and street contact. But I remember walking past a home and there was a young single adult age man that was there out on his porch and we opened our mouths. He happened to be in the way, on the path, and we happened to open our mouths. He actually showed some interest, so he invited us in. We started teaching him. His house was full of a bunch of friends that had come over around his same age. We had taught them all kind of a quick first discussion and most of them said, no, I'm not that interested. But as we went around asking, do any of you want us to come and teach you individually? One young woman said, yeah, I'd love for you to come back. So we got her name and information and set up a time to be able to go back and teach her. Well, we left the home and we're walking down to continue street contacting. And as I looked at the name, it blew me away because it was the name of one of the former investigators that we had been looking for that day. Sure enough, when we went back for our set appointment, she'd let us know that she had met missionaries previously and would love to kind of pick up where they left off. I was blown away that what we thought was now impossible because the, the street names had all changed was totally possible for the Lord. As long as, one, we followed the Spirit along a certain path, and number two, 
opened our mouths. Knowing where we'd be that morning and who we wanted to talk to and that we would talk to anyone we saw, it was an easy thing for the Lord to make sure that this person happened to be visiting at a friend's house and that that person happened to be sitting out on his front porch when we happened to be walking by. I was a receiver and I learned that if I can get the quarterback to trust me, if he knew I would catch it if he threw the ball my way, and if we were on the same page as far as a play was concerned, he knew where on the field I would be, what pattern was I running, then if he knew the play, if we both knew the play, and if he trusted my hands, he would try to get me the ball as often as he could. The Lord is the ultimate quarterback. And if he trusts that we will open our mouths, and if we let him know where we'll be, he will put prepared people on our path, just as he did for Alma. Again, he doesn't know any of this. He's just going in and going to give the city another shot. But he sees this man on the way, and he opens his mouth. Now, yes, he opened it because he hadn't opened it in a while to put food into it. And that's what he's asking for. Will you please give me something to eat? Will you feed me? Yes, technically, I'm here to feed you and the people spiritually. But will you please feed me temporally? By the way, I love that he does that. Not just for self-preservation, but to get Amulek involved in something beyond himself. Clayton Christensen makes this clear in his amazing book, The Power of Everyday Missionaries. That we tend to go into our missionary mode with, we're here to serve you. I have everything, you have nothing, and I'm here to share. Whereas the way Clayton Christensen describes it, there are so many people in the world that have plenty. And the one thing they lack is an opportunity to give what they have to other people. And so instead of us coming every time and saying, we have all these things that we're trying to give to you, to go to them and say, you have so much to offer. Would you come and serve? In his incredible member missionary work in the Boston area, that's often the approach that he took with people, especially people that seem to be more well off. Would you come and help us? We're going to move a family into our neighborhood. Would you come and participate? And asking people to give is often the first step for that person wanting to receive. So it was with Amulek. Now it's verse 20 of chapter 8 where Alma starts to learn what we just learned back in chapter 10. The man says unto him, still no name even, I am a Nephite. Here's who I am. But more importantly, here's who you are. I know that thou art a holy prophet of God. For thou art the man whom an angel said in a vision, thou shalt receive. Notice how Alma had introduced himself back in verse 19. An humble servant of God. That's all I am. He doesn't say, I as your former chief judge. Or I as the current high priest. He simply says, I am a humble servant of God. And I'm starving. Do you have anything you can give me? It's amazing how humbly he approaches this man, this man who knows who he is far better than Alma could possibly assume. You're not just a humble servant. You're a holy prophet of God. All those things he learned about him back in chapter 10. A prophet of the Lord, a holy man, a chosen man of God, a man who has fasted many days because of your people's sins. Oh, I know who you are, and I know how hungry you must be. So please follow me. Go with me into my house. I will impart unto thee of my food. And not only that, I know thou wilt be a blessing unto me and my house. Just as the angel had promised him. I'm here to serve you. And I know that the Lord will richly bless me in return. In 21, they go back to Amulek's home. He brings bread and meat for Alma. 22, Alma eats it and is filled and blesses Amulek and his house and gives thanks to God. I love the recipient of each individual part. It's Amulek who receives Alma's blessings, but it's God who receives Alma's thanks. Thank you, God, for preparing this good man. Thank you, God, for knowing my needs. Thank you, God, for telling me to go back, for giving us all a second chance at redemption here for guiding me in the way that I should go, for guiding him in the way he should go, 
for sending not one but two angels to set up this incredible rendezvous. Now that dinner is over, some better introductions can begin in verse 23. Alma says, I'm the high priest over the church of God throughout the land. And in 24, I've been called to preach the word of God among all this people, according to the spirit of revelation and prophecy. That pair, by the way, keeps coming up in the Book of Mormon when it comes to missionary work, to teach by the spirit of revelation and prophecy. Revelation, it has to come from God. That's what he'd been wrestling with God with, right? That God has to pour out his spirit. This has to take place by the spirit of revelation. And then prophecy as John explains in the book of Revelation, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. That's how we teach. We invite the Holy Ghost to confirm truth regarding our testimony of Jesus Christ. That is power in our preaching. We don't have to predict the future. We don't have to read people's minds. But we do have to teach by the spirit of prophecy and revelation. Our testimonies of Christ, born into the softened heart of the other person through the power of the Holy Ghost. Verse 24, he goes on, I was about to set my back towards this land forever. They'd cast me out and I was fine leaving. Well, I wasn't fine. I was weighed down with sorrow, grief, tribulation, anguish of soul because of the wickedness of the people here. But I felt like I had given them their chance and I was moving on. There are plenty of other cities for me yet to visit. But in 25, I was commanded to turn again and prophesy unto this people. I was commanded to give them a second chance. Me, Alma the Younger, the recipient of such a merciful second chance myself, was more than willing to give the people of Ammonihah the same blessing. In 26, he blesses Amulek, and in 27, he tarries with him for many days before he begins to preach unto the people. I've often wondered, what did he do during that time? Probably enjoyed several more meals, I hope for his sake. But more than that, I have a feeling he was feeding and not just being fed. Remember what we've already learned about Amulek. Here's a man who knew but wouldn't know. There was still some softening of his own heart. Just like Alma the Younger met an angel, but then still took many days of fasting and prayer himself to come to know the truth of the message he would then begin preaching. Same thing, I think, here for Amulek. He's had his experience with the angel who has introduced him now to Alma. And Alma seems to take it from there. But I would imagine that during those many days of tarrying with Amulek, it was a matter of getting to know one another as companions. Alma teaching Amulek more of the gospel that he might know and truly know these things. Because, I mean, honestly, for a guy that knows but would not know, what he ends up teaching in these later chapters is incredible. If this is a greeny missionary, wow, let me be this guy's trainer. Amulek is incredible. I also wonder if some of that teaching went in reverse. It was Alma teaching Amulek about the gospel, but also Amulek teaching Alma about the situation on the ground there in Ammonihah. You may know more about God and his principles. I know more about these people. I'm one of them. Between the two of them, they've got vertical and horizontal connections, both of which will bear fruit. By the way, I wonder how Alma's feeling. I know there are missionaries all around the world that for the past few months have had to tarry many days in quarantine. I can't go out and teach like I want to. Now, yes, there are other ways to teach. I've seen missionaries. I got to do a, a Zoom fireside with a mission that was just incredible. Amazing young men and young women that are just itching to go out and teach like the way they've been prepared. But I hope that they know that this tarrying for Alma and Amulek, just like their tarrying under quarantine, was not a waste of their mission. It was a part of their mission. It was their mission. In fact, this tarrying time was what made the rest of their teaching time so powerful. So much good can come, even when we have to tarry in ways that we hadn't planned. Meanwhile, verse 28, the people are waxing more gross in their iniquities. Maybe that's the concern. I don't want to tarry. Things are only getting worse out there. Well, that may be true. But are you getting better in here? Are you getting more prepared to be able to meet their needs? I think you get all of this sense from Amulek's version of the meeting, 
the way he describes it, and he's telling the people about this. Chapter 10, verse 8, I obeyed the voice of the angel. I returned towards my house. Again, this is God setting up the orbits that are about to intersect. You need to turn around and go back home because Alma is on his way from this other path. And that's the place where the two of you will meet. As I was going thither, I found the man whom the angel said unto me, Thou shalt receive into thy house. Behold, it was this same man who's been speaking unto you concerning the things of God. How's that for an introduction? This is who I am, man of no small reputation. And this is who he is, someone an angel introduced me to. Verse 9, the angel said to me, he is a holy man. So I know he's a holy man. It was said by an angel of God. That's a pretty good source. If you're looking for references, if you want to check his resume, well, pretty impressive letter of recommendation. He goes on in verse 10, I know that the things whereof he hath testified are true. Behold, I say unto you, as the Lord liveth, that strongest possible language of an oath, even so has he sent his angel to make these things manifest unto me, and this he has done while this Alma hath dwelt at my house. What was happening during this tarrying for many days? Continued angelic ministration. I don't know if Alma was involved in that or even aware of it before Amulek lets the people know here. What may have felt like tarrying to Alma felt like training to Amulek. What may have felt like slowing down for one companion was getting the other companion up to speed. And I hope we sense that in some of our tarrying moments, that it's not just about us. It's not just about the outside work. More things are happening than what we could possibly realize. Verse 11, Amulek gets more specific, that God has blessed mine house ever since Alma stepped under its roof. He's blessed me, he's blessed my women, my children, my father, my kinsfolk. All my kindred hath he blessed, and the blessing of the Lord hath rested upon us according to the words which he spake. That's what happens every time we invite one of God's chosen and holy prophets into our home, into our life. Every time we get past the concern that, oh no, if I let him in, he's going to ask something of me. Just ask the widow of Zarephath how that turned out. Just ask Amulek how that turned out. If you make room for a prophet in your home, in your life, will he ask things of you? You bet. But those sacrifices will turn to your blessing with such abundance. I have seen that to be true in my life. Making room for prophets has made all the difference for me. Blessings have flowed ever since. Seen both sides of this rendezvous. Finally, they're ready to go. Back to chapter 8, verse 29. The word comes to Alma, go. Say unto my servant Amulek, go. The two of you are being called on this mission together. Notice also what the Lord just called Amulek, my servant. Too often in the mission field, that's all we think of as our companions, my companion. When a better title for that companion would be the one God considers true, my servant. Especially when we have a hard time putting up with companions. I didn't. All of mine were amazing. 15 out of 15. But to see them through God's eyes, that isn't just my companion. That is God's servant. God claims them because God called them. What a privilege to be able to work with a fellow servant of God. Go forth and prophesy unto this people. Prophesy together. And here's your message. Repent ye, for thus saith the Lord, except ye repent, I will visit this people in mine anger. Yea, and I will not turn my fierce anger away. We're going to come back to the specifics of that stark call to repentance in a moment. But they go forth in verse 30. Alma and Amulek, this new companionship. They declare the words of God unto the people. They are filled with the Holy Ghost. So it's not a companionship of two. This is a trio, as every good mission companionship ought to be. Verse 31, they had power given unto them. The third companion was the source of that insomuch that they could not be confined in dungeons, that must have been tried, 
Neither was it possible that any man could slay them. That must have been tried too. Nevertheless, they did not exercise their power until they were bound in bands and cast into prison. Sounds like that third companion was always there coming to the rescue, but always coming at the very last moment. That often seems to be the case with God. And why does he wait? This was done that the Lord might show forth his power in them. It was only after exhausting the strength of the two mortal companions that the power of the third companion would become crystal clear in everyone's eyes, including Alma and Amulek's. That's why the Lord typically comes in the fourth watch, to show forth his power, not to make us question his timing. They go forth, they preach, they prophesy, and they do it with the spirit and power of God.